Welcome to the Women of Marvel podcast. I'm Ellie Pyle. And I'm Angelique Rocher. Hi, Angelique. I'm glad that we're back on an episode together. It's been a while. How have you been filling your time? Mainly just watching Marvel Studios' The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. But besides that, I gotta say, I've also just been spending most of my time on TikTok. So tell me about TikTok, because my concept of TikTok is Baron Zemo dancing to all the songs. And I don't even know if that is TikTok. So I'm just combining the two things you just said in my brain. It is and it isn't. TikTok is just like 15 second, 30 second, 60 second long videos that hopefully make you laugh or teach you something. Amazing. That's that's probably, yeah, that, that sounds like a good <laughs> I have been watching a show that I actually helped write is streaming as an off-Broadway production right now, which is super cool because it's live every night. So it's different every time. And it's called White Rock Cliff. And it's about the Appalachian Trail. So I had a lot of fun writing it, learning about the trail and its history. And history is what we're here to talk about today, right? Ugh, yo. So what most folks don't know, my father actually was a history teacher for a little bit and then became a librarian. So today's episode is like a piece of my heart because it's about comics and history. And if folks who are comic book lovers understand that comics has a long history, like just at Marvel, we have over 80 years of comic book history. But now, like, we've got courses and books and, and, and all these parts of academia. And now people are getting degrees in sequential art. Like, it's it's just so dope to see this thing we know and love turn into this kind of academic institutions. But it got me thinking, who are the folks writing these books? Who are the folks writing these articles? Who are the comic book historians? And so I'm really excited because we were able to talk to a comic book historian that's helping to build the lexicon of comics from the ground up. I am a huge history nerd and I love that our concept of history and studying history keeps expanding to include all the stuff that people are interested in and all the different things that make up culture, as well as a variety of different perspectives. But I imagine the number of women in this field is still pretty small. You are correct. And it's even smaller for women of color, right? So that's why I was super excited about today's guest. We have Deborah Whaley, professor of American studies and African-American studies at the University of Iowa to talk about being one of the first historians to really spearhead comic book research and comic in general about black women. Not to mention, I'm kind of obsessed with her book, Black Women in Sequence, Reinking Comics, Graphic Novels, and Anime. And, you know, the coolest thing about it is not just a history of Black women in comics, but she's also talking about why representation, even if the characters aren't Black, really matter. This is so exciting. I can't wait to hear it. Let's get into it. Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm so excited you're here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. It's a pleasure. You have such a wonderful bio. You've done so many incredible things. But I hate reading people's bios. I just feel like it doesn't do people justice. How would you introduce yourself to someone who hasn't met you yet? And what do you do? I am a writer, an artist, and a poet. And I also teach. I am right now at the University of Iowa, and I am a professor of American Studies 
and African-American studies. And so I wear a lot of hats and I do really interdisciplinary work, uh, including work on comics, but also visual culture more broadly and cultural history and African-American history, comparative ethnic studies, film as well. I'm a, a film and cinema studies scholar. So you don't sleep. That's cool. Great. <laughs> I don't sleep. You're right. <laughs> it's like, because I was like, what? Okay, math hours a day. And I'm super excited because you wrote a book. I'm going to name of the book for those who don't know uh, Women in Sequence, Reinking Comics, Graphic Novels, and Anime. Huge fan, mostly just because of the passion in your writing. Like, you can really tell that you are a comic book fan, and there is a true love of wanting to ensure, like, the history of this representation, which isn't talked about a lot, is there, which I love because the anime part is particularly important for women of color within a certain generation bracket because manga and anime is really how they got into comics. But before we get into the book, like I want to learn more about you. What got you into comics, graphic novels, and anime? Like, Why this book? You clearly could have written about 45 other things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, this book happened by accident. So I'll explain that, but I'll, I'll talk a, a bit more about my um, background. So I mentioned that I'm an artist and the only training I have had in art uh, is in cartooning. And that was pretty short-lived for uh, a lot of different reasons, but but not it didn't have to do with my talent, but some other things that I think a lot of people of color and women of color experience in art school sometimes. And that actually came out in the interviews I did for my book when I was talking to women about you know what their experience was like and their training and those who had training in, in art or went to art school, what was that like? And um, most of them said that there were some challenges you know that had to do with being you know uh, one of the few women or a few people of color like in the room and and all of that so it's complicated but so how I got into comics I like to frame that in terms of how I got into the larger sequential art world so for me it wasn't uh, just about print comics or comic books per se it was also about from a very young age just always drawing always drawing and in particular I would copy the characters in uh, you know what we call the funnies or comic strips in the newspaper and I can't even tell you why that was or why I was drawn to that form of art so we just started there from uh, probably I think like first grade so always drawing I really enjoyed looking at comic strips in the newspapers I would read comic books especially one sort of hand it down uh, to me from my siblings uh, but I had never like gone to an actual comic book store interestingly enough and still until I start writing this book so how did this book happen I found that there really wasn't a lot written about black women in the comics world you know black women in sequential art and so I saw an opportunity there to merge my art world you know so comics has always been a part of my expression as an artist with the scholarly world and it just really you know grew from there and having the great opportunity to talk to women artists and authors and decided to do an article on the cartoonist Jackie Orms. And for folks, can you can you lay out who Jackie, because a lot of people don't know who Jackie Orms is, is and I think she's so important. 
Yeah, she is. Absolutely. So Jackie Orms is known as the first black female cartoonist to gain wide recognition. And she did comics in black newspapers, such as the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier. She started out as a reporter. And even though she was working at black newspapers, she still faced a glass ceiling and she still faced discrimination as a woman in so far as what she was able to do as a reporter. And so she started doing comics and she found a way to report on the issues of the day through her comic strips. So it was kind of like she, you know, she took on the role of reporter in ways that, uh, I mean, you know, today seems like really, uh, you know, exciting. Uh, but back then it was almost, you know, that was her way of being was able unheard to of. Like, break that new. glass ceiling. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this group of black women called the Orms Society who see Jackie Orms as the trailblazer that she is. And so they're a group of uh, black women artists and authors. And this group really serves as community making for women in the sequential art world and also just to help get their names and their art out there in the larger world and to be able to support each other. And so, you know, after I started writing about Jackie Orms and the Orms Society, I, I saw that this could really be and should be a larger project. And that's how the book came about, just wanting to feel that gap in the literature, but not starting out as, okay, I'm gonna write this book, just starting out as, okay, I think I'm gonna write a couple articles. And then, you know, here we have now a Black Women in Sequence. Since this is a Marvel podcast, who, if any, are your favorite Marvel characters? Yeah, I mean, great question. Of course, I love, you know, Captain Marvel. I love Storm. And it's it's interesting to bring her name up because a lot of times in asking people like what black women characters uh, in the comics world have you heard of, they just say Storm. <laughs> I like as if she's the only, you know, black female comic book character and she's not. Um, and people think different things about her. But I think that she is amazing, you know. And I think just other characters, Gamora, you know, Black Widow, Misty Knight, Photon, Monica Rambeau. So there's just so many amazing uh, characters in the Marvel world, female and, and not female. <laughs> so. <laughs> I love it. So when getting into this medium, and I think this gets back to kind of what you were alluding to in the beginning of the conversation, did you find it difficult to find women around you that were also interested in the same subject, right? You know, I've had this conversation and particularly black women, because I think sometimes for us, it, it feels a little like we're on our island with our short boxes. I know. Absolutely. And there's this idea that, you know, men are the major readers of comic books. And there there are, you know, there is a, a, a large group of men, of course, young men who read comic books, but it's always been multi-gender readership of comics and readers, female readers and non-binary readers of comics don't get that attention, but we've always been there. Having said that, going to comic book stores and going to to comic cons you know i've never seen another black woman in a comic book store besides myself <laughs> and you know before i was talking about the arms society it was really empowering for me to be able to interview those women as a way of making community for myself, for someone who's interested in this world, mm. but for someone who's also an artist. So like for the first time, 
I had the opportunity to talk to all these women who share these same interests. And without the internet, you know, that wouldn't be as, as easy as it was for me when I uh, started this project. So, you know, I begin my book saying I am a black woman in a fanboy world and fanboy in quotation marks, because I don't like that sort of stereotype that gets, you know, pinned on um, young men who, who read comics. There's a very particular thing we mean when we say fanboy. Right. And I tried to coin in the book Afro fans. Talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just thinking about what does it mean to be a person of African descent who is a consumer and a reader and a spectator of this form? What does it mean to engage in narratives and visuality that may or may not look like you? You know, and so what are the ways in which we negotiate issues of representation? And to your question earlier, like how do we find community being the minority within a subgroup of readers and spectators? of this form. So it really is a way to just think about what does it mean to be a black reader, spectator, consumer of uh, mm -hmm. sequential art and like where our history and culture and all of that uh, feeds into that reading and viewing process. I love it. And it's kind of a great segue to this idea of one of your many titles, which is a comic book historian. Can you, cause for a lot of folks, they're now like going, that's a title? You could do that? What's a comic book historian? You know, right. what is a comic book historian? And like, how did you get into that profession? Comics has always been a part of my pedagogy before this book or any articles even came about. So I was always using editorial cartoons, comic strips, comic books, graphic novels, film, to, um, you know, no matter what the subject was, I was teaching to have the opportunity to think about the issues that we were exploring in class through the visual form and through these really sort of pithy narratives that you find in comics and comic books and in comic strips and these other forms. And so it's always been a really engaging pedagogical tool that I found that students really mm. respond to. And so, so that part of the scholarly aspect was already there, but in terms of being a, a comic book historian, it just really came about as someone who is interested in and invested in thinking about the cultural work and the possibilities of popular culture and mm -hmm. visual culture and what this form uniquely does that other forms cannot do or do not do. And so I'm really pleased now that despite being a black woman in a fanboy world, I am really pleased that there, you know, I'm not the only comic book historian or not even the only, you know, black person or black female in this world. So I'm really happy now that there are more and more people who are exploring this form, not just in the classroom, but in publications and really talking about the important meaning making that authors and artists and fans and readers make of this form. Meaning making. Yeah. You know, how do readers, viewers, um, and spectators experience these forms? And what ideas do they attach to these visual uh, visualizations of these uh, characters and these um, 
scenarios and why are people invested in the comic book, graphic novel, anime, manga, we can continue the list, gaming world. It matters, right? It has meaning to them and it is not a one-way process at all, right? So there are the things that the authors and the artists are imbuing in the form. And there's their intentions, but it's also about what the viewer, reader, and spectator is bringing to the form and their own sort of background and history and ideas that come into play when they're consuming sequential art. And so there really is this uh, reciprocity that I don't think a lot of times people think of. I think sometimes there's this idea that there are the producers producing something for this market, but the market is helping move what gets produced, right? And they're making their own meaning out of it, uh, whatever the intentions of the producer um, happens to be. I also kind of want to talk about the fact that this is an evolving field, right? Like 20, 30 years ago, if you went to a college, you couldn't take a course on comics. You couldn't take a course on sequential art. Like it wasn't, you'd have to go to a very particularized school for that. But in the last 10 years, it's really been seen, like even the American Writers Museum has a section for comics because it has become more revered in American culture. How have you seen this evolve? And do you feel like there was any pushback when people were like, wait, comic book historian, seriously? Oh, there was a ton of pushback and there still is, despite you know all of the changes and the traction that this field has gotten inside the academy. I mean, we're at a moment now where people are writing dissertations for their PhD as a comic book. And so I'm thinking back to when I had applied for a grant and what I wanted to do was not just write like a straightaway article, but to do a kind of a comic book, a visual representation of the various roles that I you know, found this character to play in culture. And, you know, the feedback I got was, gosh, this sounds really cool and exciting. And, you know, can we keep your grant proposal on record to show other people how they can think of things in creative ways, but you're not getting the grant. (laughs) And I just think, you know, when I first started trying to publish in journals and, you know, getting um, reviewers who would say, who cares about what children are reading and the things that adults write for them? Like, literally, that's a quote. That's not even be kind of like embellishing. And so that's how it started. But, you know, I've always been uh, one of these people who is completely comfortable with going against the grain and kind of, you know, being out there, even if I'm one of few, when I feel passionate about something. And, you know, even still today, I, I kind of hear whispers about this field not being important or doing scholarship on comics uh, not being yeah. uh important. But it is, right? But it is. And also what other people think is not my concern. (laughs) And I kind of want to get from you kind of your words, like there's an impact of these and you through your work, like what have you found has been what people may not see as the impact of sequential art? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, what I do in the classroom and even with my book and some articles uh, that I've written on this form is to think about how history, politics, 
social mm. relations, gender, race, ethnicity, sexualities, religion is articulated in this form, right? And so it becomes a vehicle by which one can explore history, can explore international relations, can explore friendship and nationalism and heroic narratives and why are people drawn mm. to these narratives and these tropes i mean you know we wouldn't have these books and films and television shows this world would not have exploded to where it is today if there wasn't a consumer base out there and there's a huge one so it matters to people you know everyday yeah. people across the board whether or not it is something that people in academia or in other spheres sort of understand or take seriously. We take it seriously and that's what really matters. <laughs> I love that. And I think that goes directly into this idea of what I love about the book, right? Like this idea of what Black women in sequence brings to the conversation and brings this idea of representation and relatability because representation doesn't always mean skin tone. Um, yeah. as we've known in the past, because there hasn't been a lot of black women characters, Asian American characters, like it has definitely evolved over mm -hmm. time for you. And I got to ask, because a lot of people will be very surprised when they open this book is like, butterfly, who is this? Like they will, they will, because it does give you these moments where you do broaden your idea of what comics and sequence are. What is the research process even? Like, just just seems like you were on an excavation. I really was. And that's a great question. One of the things I say in the book is writing this was like a treasure hunt. <laughs> so, you know, it was hard to find things. But then once you did, it just exploded and opened up so much more. But it also meant that in many ways I had to create my own archive and look in places that one might not ordinarily look as a historian or as a scholar of history and literature uh, like and sociology. Where? Yeah, well, you know, it means obviously I did, um, well, I don't know that's obvious, but I did archival research for this project, which, you know, historians, literary scholars do archival research secondary research, so looking at other books and articles. But again, because there wasn't a lot written on Black women in this form, it meant that I wasn't reading things on Black women in comics. I was reading things about Black women in representation, Black women in popular culture, about the genres of the comic book world, about superheroes and characters outside of the superhero trope. And so trying to use a variety of sources and knit together as best I could a narrative, but it also meant that I would need to talk to readers and viewers and consumers. And so I did a lot of work talking to people who owned comic book stores, talking to readers and viewers, and getting their take on this world, why it's important to them, and um, how it's become a process of for some acculturation, you know, maturation. I have a, I'm teaching right now a course on the black image in comics, graphic novels and anime. And one of my students shared that, you know, she's, she's from uh, Africa. And she said when she and her family came to the US, one of the ways she learned English was through comic books, you know? And that's something that I hadn't really thought about. So when you talk about it kind of acting as a form of acculturation, I, I think that's really interesting to think about, so. So you start, again, I kind of mentioned it earlier, 1971, the appearance of Butterfly, 
talk to me about finding this. Talk to me about like who Butterfly is and, and kind of what she represents. Because honestly, she looks like a badass. Yeah, and she definitely is. So I started the book out there, you know, because she's known as one of the first, if not the first. And I always kind of careful not to really delineate, you know, X or Y as first, because there's always some form or some character that comes out of the woodworks that no one remembers or heard about, but known as, you know, one of the first Black female superheroines. So it made sense for me to begin my book in that way. And she's this character who was first introduced in the book Hellrider. Uh, and Hellrider was this graphic novel, sort of an adult-themed comic book produced by Skywald Publications. And there was this uh, character who was a musician and a singer by night and a crime fighter, <laughs> sometimes by day or evening or after you know, her uh, performing at the club. And so uh, this character produced in the 1970s was really squarely within a kind of 1970s black popular culture aesthetic. So there was this sense of a little bit of black exploitation film aspect to the character. And so she was introduced in Hellrider and then she ended up getting her own title, short-lived, only one book, <laughs> which gets us back to like, how did you do this? How did you put it together? So I begin with the butterfly, this great, you know, crime fighter. She, you know, flashes her wings. She's able to fly. You know, she has these super senses and, and all of this, but she didn't stick around long, right? Just yeah. introduced in Hellrider. And then she had her um, little sort of mini title. And so I was able to talk about that, the significance of that character for breaking a lot of representative ground despite being uh, short-lived. And there were other Black female characters who I was not able to write chapters about, you know, just because there was not enough necessarily material there. So uh, that's who the butterfly was, and she was fabulous. So the other character, and you kind of mentioned her earlier in this conversation, that gets a good portion of the book is another first storm. Yeah. I think people really love storm as a character. And like, of course we see her in giant size X-Men. She's on the cover. She's in the animated series. She's a Roro Monroe. She's storm, you know, but I don't know if a lot of people really know about her earlier history, right? Like the development, how it came through, like, can you expand more kind of your findings about Storm the character and her impact? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that question because I feel like I'm still one of the few people who do work in this area who really have an appreciation for Storm and who see her as more than a sidekick. I don't see that. I don't see Storm in that way at all. So part I'm, of my I'm work sorry, on Storm as a sidekick. Sidekick. Yeah, I mean, you'll you, I've seen chapters of books and I know, right? And articles where people really diminish the role that she has played um, singularly, but also as a part of this collective that is to say the X-Men. So part of my work on her was to intervene in the discourse, first of all, and say, this is a significant character. And the way I was able to kind of build out the narrative of her meaning was to do precisely what you mentioned before your question, to look at her appearance in film, in animation, in X-Men comic books, uh, and there's this whole history of X-Men. So, you know, I haven't read every issue of X-Men, but I read enough 
to be able to get a sense of the evolving aspect of this character over time. And I see Storm yeah. as critical insofar as, you know, not just because she's a black woman, um, you know, not just because she's an, an African character, she's um, yep. you know, a mutant and like others in the title. X-Men, she's also a badass. They, yeah. I mean, they face uh, lots of uh, discrimination, misunderstanding because they are mutants. And, you know, as you know, X-Men stands in as this kind of metaphor for social, cultural, political relations. So when it was introduced, it was introduced in a way, I think, to help um, better understand why we other people, why we push people to the margins and how those very people who are pushed to the margins can be the ones at the end of the day to save us. Right. And so we see that. Um, with the X-Men. And so, you know, for me, I think of Storm in terms of being an important leader, you know, breaking lots of ground, talking about things like, you know, pregnancy and abortion and just the sort of the visuality of her as well, you know, has changed over time. We can talk about skin color, we can talk about, you know, the various hairstyles that she's had, and we can talk about some of the things that she was able to do as a character in animation vis-a-vis the books but also the films. I I have never, I need to do more reading. I Maybe I have glanced over anyone calling my dear Storm a sidekick just because she's been, she's been leader of the X-Men. She's been an Avenger. She's been a Morlock. Like she's, she's done everything. She's very versatile. She's lost her power. She's got it back. She's a Mohawk. She has long hair. It's, it's great. In all of this, do you feel like there was something in your findings that was like the most interesting thing? So you're like, Really? Storm? Okay. One thing that stands out is reading the older X-Men comics, some of the themes and ideas that the character introduced. I mean, before I talked about, you know, there's this moment where she talks about things like, you know, abortion and things like that. Where I mean, now this wouldn't seem like a big deal. But back then, <laughs> to have narratives that dealt with that, And so I thought that was interesting just to see, like, you know, even just decades ago, the types of topics that they were introducing and using this character to think more deeply about a number of things. That was exciting for me. You know, I also write about the graphic novel Storm that was done uh, as well and her sort of backstory that was introduced with the Black Panther and her as a young girl. So an aha moment for me. I don't know that it was an aha moment necessarily, but I really liked the ways in which the author was able to think about intertribal conflict to uh, think about colorism, to think about growing up poor, to think through black male and female relationships through this graphic novel. So, you know, I think getting back to our early conversation insofar as like, why is this form important? Why do people not think it's important? Or like, what's there? How do people make meaning? She's a really good example. And Eric Jerome Dickey's graphic novel Storm is a really good example of what you can do with this form to explain and explore a wide variety of things, including the relationship between U.S. Uh, and Africa and, you know, apartheid and all these things that, um, you know, some of these characters, especially ones who are marked as African, are able to bring into the discourse. 
I love it. And what I, what I really truly do love about it. Cause I, I know for me, like there's just these panels, right? Like that my, one of my favorite panels is Kitty Pride getting bad at store for cutting her hair. And I'm like, how dare you? But also <laughs> like, that's a real thing that happens. Yeah. Like woman's hair, particularly a black woman's hair is, is, has hold so much importance sometimes to other people. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up that example because we were talking before about other people who have written on Storm. And, you know, I read a piece and it's it's a great piece of scholarship, but their take on, you know, Storm, especially when she had the Mohawk, was that trying to make Storm a sort of punk rock, Afro-punk type of character, which is what I love. <laughs> I love about her. And that moment was detached from her Africanness. And that it was kind of a misstep and mismove and all of that. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because in that kind of, you know, not stereotypes, but it flattens out what it means to be black, you know, what it means to be African, what it means to be African American. And she's a great example of that kind of changing aesthetic. And I've heard a lot from readers and viewers and spectators who are really invested in her kind of look over time. I love it. Okay, so in 2018, you taught a course called The Black Image in Sequential Art, comics, yep, graphic novels, and anime. Too. Yep. I was about to say, I'm sure this did not stop. Um, all right, for a person who wishes they would have been able to take this class in college, what is the syllabus? What does it look like? What do you discuss in this class? Great question. So, and it was really fun to be able to teach this class when Black Panther was coming out. So that was a big part of the class as well. And, you know, we did a field trip where we went to go see the film. We did one week, which we called Black Superhero Week. And so, you know, with the library and other people across campus, we did all of this programming where we had panels of people who we would consider to be like black heroes in the larger community. You know, I did a talk, we had raffles, we did pop-up exhibitions in the library. But in so far as the class is concerned, we do a mix of reading uh, scholarship. So we like, we read John Jennings and um, Francis Gateward's book, The Blacker, The Ink. We read a great book by Jeffrey Brown on Milestone uh, Comics. We start out talking about early animation and cartoons and how some of the aspects of minstrelsy you would see in early cartoons. So I teach this great book by Christopher Lehman called The Colored Cartoon. We read the graphic novel by John Jennings, The Rethinking of Octavia Butler's um, Kindred. We read Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, Black Panther, and uh, you know we read a lot of articles too, but one of the things that I have found interesting, and I don't know why I didn't expect this, because this happened when I was interviewing um, Black women artists and writers. At least 85% of them said that they were influenced by anime and manga. And I was surprised about that. And even if they weren't conspicuously in their art or narratives, dealing with those themes and aspects of that aesthetic, it's still kind of influenced in a variety of ways how they thought about the comic form. Well, in this class, I've had a critical mass the first time in this time of people in the class who one of their favorite forms is manga and they're big anime and manga fans. And um, so they're in the class to learn more about that and also kind of looking for community and in some ways feeling isolated by you know, being mm. a fan of this form when a lot of other people 
who are consumers and readers and viewers are a fan of comics, but not necessarily that particular form. And then when you add in, you know, if you're someone of, of African descent, your kind of ability to connect to other people who find these forms to be really powerful, that can shrink ever more. So, uh, you know, we look at film as well. Um, so I show a few films like Fast Color, which I think is just such a really beautiful film about a generation of Black women who have powers. And it's this really beautiful kind of Afro-surrealist, Afro-futurist type of um, narrative. And we watch some documentaries. So that, that in a nutshell, and if, if folks are interested, I, I have my syllabus, which I did in the form of a comic book, online at my website and people can take a look a look at it and get a better idea of what i do in the class but i'll just end it by saying one of the things one of their assignments is to do their own comic so i okay. uh, had them do these one page comics and then we're putting them all together to create a larger book of uh, art and narrative um, by the students. So I have them not just doing like quiz and papers, we do that, but doing like projects where they get a feel for what does it mean to create a comic and the thought process that goes goes into that. I love this. Like this is, it seems like a dream. Do you feel like any of your students have mentioned anything like surprising that they've learned or like, has there been a moment when you're like, yes, it's working? I've yeah. done my job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the things that they didn't know about, you know, I think mostly is the sort of earlier history and some cartoonists like Jackie Orms or some of the early comic mm. strips in black newspapers that would feature black characters and finding out about other characters, you know, besides Black Panther, so that there's this whole history and trajectory of a variety of characters that they did not know about. So just kind of learning about that. And I think the other sort of eye-opener thing for them was to realize in these early uh, cartoons that there were these racial themes that as a kid, you may or may not notice, but a lot of these early cartoons were imbued with some really problematic ideas, uh, people of African descent. And so being able as an adult to like, to look at these things and examine them more closely in terms of the ideological work and aspects in these forms, I think has been an eye opener for them. This is amazing. And I think I'm actually really curious from your perspective, because I have my theory, this is not about me, about why a lot of women of a certain age got into this space through anime and manga, and it deals with accessibility. Talk to me about that pathway, because I mean, I'm sure you've in your conversations, it's popped up. Yeah, you know, that's a, a good question. And I don't think there's necessarily one particular like origin that you can point to. I mean, may maybe there is. But my sort of guess at it would be in the 1990s, we had networks like the Cartoon Network that began to uh, show this form, right? And so it was just sort of introduced in a larger way. And so just Japanese popular culture more broadly, there was a big sort of explosion of that in the US. And so with forms like manga in particular, the ways in which this form deals with narrative and the types of topics and themes I find to be really self-reflexive and deep and interesting and you know provocative and so i don't want to just sort of 
overly generalize <laughs> about the form, but there is just something about it that's really captivating. I mean, I think, you know, even me as a kid, I remember watching Speed Racer, right? And I just, I hadn't, I didn't really understand it at all. <laughs> you know, I found it to be complex in so many ways, but as a kid, I was just drawn to it. Like, I loved Speed Racer. Yeah, I didn't know Loved what was going it. on, but I was like, this is really fascinating. <laughs> randomly, there there are animals, and there are cars, and there's a girl, and there's a guy, and they save the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, before this book came out, I wrote an article on Aaron Magruder's The Boondocks. And I had explored his comic strip and other publications, but this particular article was looking at his Adult Swim animated version of the boondocks and how he merges black cultural politics and black history and representation with the aesthetic form of anime which i articulate as afro anime and graphic blackness and you know what he was able to do with that show and talking about blackness and politics and so many different things i think was really primed for that kind of Afro anime aesthetic form. It just works really well. And in the book, when I'm talking about the character, um, Nadia, Nadia and the Secret of Blue Water, you know, people read her differently racially. Some read her as black, you know, she talks about being from Africa. Some read her as African, some read her as South Asian or South Asian American. But whatever you read her as, she's a brown girl in this form, right? So that other thing about anime is there aren't necessarily a lot of characters of color in anime. And I talk about that in the book, and I think that's interesting. Uh, and I kind of walk through maybe why that is and the history um, behind that. But here we have this character that women of color could cosplay as, you know, without having to feel like, okay, I'm the black version of like, you know, this particular character, but like, no, this character like looks like me and I can cosplay as her. And that's really empowering. So it, it is really fascinating how much, um, not just this generation, but even like my generation a little bit younger than me uh, was so highly influenced and enticed by this genre. I mean, I've been talking about anime for forever. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I think it's really great because at the end of the day, like regardless of how you got into this space, like it's all, it's all legitimate, right? It's mm -hmm. whether it was picking up a trade paperback, a manga, watching Toonami, which I did religiously. It's all pretty amazing. But I think at the end of the day, I love that people are able to use the art form to tell stories that are making an impact. Yeah, and also just the visuality as well. Like some of these artists and authors I just mentioned, the way they visualize characters through this form is really different, you know? So you'll have like a brown skin character with like pink hair, or like purple eyes, and just playing a lot with what blackness is and can look like, or having characters that are human and Elfian, you know, at the same time as a way to, just like X-Men does, talk about difference, you know, what it means to embody or be from a multiplicity of cultures and how you're situated in society and just like what it means to be different and not of the norm. 
And so I think that's exciting too, just like how this form, when you have black characters can rethink what blackness is. And then when you don't have black characters, which that's another thing that I found really interesting is these black women artists who, you know, not, not all of their characters are in, in some cases, any of their characters are necessarily people of color. And I find that interesting too. And, and just in my discussions with them, just sort of talking about the ways in which sometimes it could be freeing to have characters who are elves or animals or characters who are not marked conspicuously in terms of race and what that brings into the, the process in terms of storytelling. I love it. Thank you so much for making the time for this. I am glad that we were able to get you on. I, I want everyone to pick up your book, but also like read your articles. Where can folks find you? Where can folks get information about you? Like, Give me the deets. <laughs> Great question. Well, I'm everywhere across the internet universe. I have a website, DebraElizabethWhaley.com, and I have a page devoted specifically to my book, Black Women in Sequence. And so I have clips from various shows, and I have the introduction to my book is online. So if people are interested and they haven't read the book or don't know about it, they can go to my website and read the introduction and then see if they want to read more, then they can um, purchase it. And so I have that at my website. And I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter is uh, D-E-W-H-A-L-E-Y. So D-E Whaley. I'm on Instagram. On Instagram, I, I post uh, some of my own art. And then I'm also a vegan blogger. So I have another Instagram that's just devoted to, you know, black vegans and cooking tutorials and, you know, my own as well as others. If, if in any way that interests <laughs> interest people. I guess I'll connect them to say the character Nadia from Nadia of the Secret of Blue Water is vegan. <laughs> so um, some connection to me bringing that up as well. Angelique, that was so interesting. I'm excited to hear more female historians talk about their work in the future. Totally. You know what? I'm happy we have the Women of Marvel podcast spotlight Deborah Whaley and the women like her who are just really making waves in geekdom. And I definitely want to take one of her classes. Yes, yes, and yes. And for our listeners out there, I know both of us are totally curious because we have, you know telepathy in our virtual space we want to know if you have any cool comic book courses you've taken send the curriculum we'd love to see your final papers we're on instagram at the women of marvel or you can tweet us at marvel using the hashtag women of marvel until next time this is marvel your universe Women of Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, M.R. Daniel, along with Judy Stevens, Angelique Rocher, and me, Ellie Pyle. Our development manager is Brad Barton, and Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Special thanks to Deborah Whaley. 